Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully looking forward to meeting Dr. Greg Parker today. He is uh, joined the School of Divinity faculty at Kern University in 2022, and he teaches courses in systematic theology at both the graduate and undergraduate courses. He's compiled a book on Herman Bobbink called What is Christianity? And in the book... Uh, he provides really a historical sketch on the nature of Christianity and and the amazing power and the unifying power of Christ. Uh, Bavink was a Dutch theologian who died in 1921, and I'm looking forward to learning uh, about him. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Bill. It's an honor to be on. Well, thank you. Uh, you have some impressive chops as I look at your resume. You have exactly one more Ph.D. than I do. <laughs> so well, more I'm, than most I'm, people, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm delighted for this opportunity to be learning uh, from you today about uh, the Dutch reform theologian Herman Bovink. I hope I'm saying his last name correct. Am I? Yeah, yeah, you're you're saying it uh, just fine. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would be another way of saying it? Uh, so some people really accentuate the A and do a, a Bavink. Um, Bavink, so, okay. But Bovink is is quite pleasant as well. Okay, so that's acceptable. And you yep. are uh, Greg Parker Jr., so tell me uh, briefly about Senior. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, uh, my dad is, uh, he works in a factory in, in Pennsylvania, a nuts and bolts factory. So we have taken totally different uh, career paths, uh, but he's quite proud of me. And uh, I like to think that in the work that I do, I'm really trying to think of um, connecting theology to the the everyday life in light of uh, the kind of work that my parents do. Yeah. Nice. And I'll ask one more dumb question before we move on to your work. Uh, how do you and your family feel about the Super Bowl champions this year? Ooh, Bill. <laughs> uh, we're, we were quite, quite gutted. Uh, it was raining uh, just outside of Philly where I live. Uh, that night, which seemed very appropriate, uh, I think we were in a, a <laughs> yeah. state of mourning. Um, yeah, it, I'm it sorry. Was really good going into the half, but uh, it's probably good that I didn't head down to Broad Street to, to celebrate. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get to your work uh, and your "What Is Christianity" uh, by Hervin Bobink. He w- again was a theologian, died in 1921, and it starts by saying that the Christian faith extends to all areas of human life, and it exerts its influence on all spheres. And I completely agree with that, but tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Bobbink, and this might explain uh, some of uh, why he uses language like that. Uh, so so Bobbink was born in 1854, which is a really interesting time in, in Dutch history. Uh, they were really moving away from a state church, away from... Uh, almost like a monarchy and towards uh, this opportunity for Christians uh, who were not a part of the state church to really practice their religion uh, openly. 
Uh, so Bavink's father and, and grandparents would have been very much persecuted for their Christianity because they belonged to um, like a free church movement. So there would have been uh, ministers preaching in barns and in fields. And because this was not a part of the state church, it wasn't really sanctioned activity. And so these Christians would live very seceder uh, lives. They would live kind of away from everyone else and kind of practice their religion in, in closed, behind closed doors, uh, so to say. Um, and in Bobbing's generation, you had this movement towards um, allowing uh, other religions outside of the state church or, or other versions of Christianity outside of the state Christianity. And so this allowed these Christians who were free churchers to essentially uh, mobilize and get engaged into various uh, sectors of culture that they could never have dreamed about. And so, the, for example, the university that Bavink attended, Leiden University, kind of the Harvard of the Dutch uh, scene, uh, he, was, he was really part of a generation of uh, free churchers or seceders who got to experience this really firsthand because uh, he, he was really that first generation that did that. And so they were really pressing or he was pressing his church tradition to be really open to engaging with culture and seeing that their Christianity did not uh, belong uh, behind closed doors, but had everything to do with uh, the culture around them. Mm-hmm. So, Greg, there's always been questions about the Bible's uh, authenticity and integrity, even its reliability. How would you respond uh, or, or, or Bobbing respond to these questions? Yeah, sure. Uh, so part of Bobbing's theology is this idea of the organic motif, which sounds really uh, uh, maybe vogue. We're all about organic food these days, uh, but that's <laughs> not really what he has in mind. Um, his organic uh, theology has in mind that things are united in a whole, uh, but composed of various parts. And these various parts are really unified and heading in a singular direction. Uh, so when uh, these Dutch theologians, or particularly Bavink, looks at Scripture, he says, look, uh, Revelation and Scripture is really an organic whole uh, that's unified around one singular story, and that being the story of who Jesus Christ is. And so the, the authority that he sees uh, being imparted in Scripture and the, the power of Scripture, he really sees as um, being given in this unified whole. And all the kind of disparate parts, so we might think of like the four Gospels, for example, these are uh, you know, four differing accounts of Christ's life. But Bobbing would say, look, they're, they're not differing accounts such that they contrast each other. They're actually differing accounts to the extent that they magnify who Christ is, and therefore tell the one story of Christ. So his his organic uh, theology kind of comes into play there, which is uh, maybe overly complicated way of saying that everything uh, in Scripture is, is working together. I love that. Dr. Mm -hmm. Greg Parker is my guest. His book is called What is Christianity by Herm Herman Bovink. Uh, what does Bovink uh, say um, that remains the primary question in in theology and religion? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, so so part of this book, um, What is Christianity, was taking part in this uh, series of books that a Dutch publisher was put, putting out called the, the Great Religion Series. And so Bavink got asked to do this one particular book on Christianity, and all, all the other books were about the other different religions um, of the time. So there was a book on 
Judaism. His, his friend wrote the book on Islam. And so he was really trying to put before his audience this uh, likely either non-believing or uh, maybe interested seeking audience uh, that, the, that the main question that every single person has to deal with is what do you make of Jesus Christ? Uh, not so much that we would put our own content onto Christ, uh, you know, having our kind of our personal Jesus who we kind of make to be whoever we want to be, but rather that, that the Jesus of the scriptures is making claims about who he is, and we have to decide, every single one of us, uh, what do we make of these claims? And so he was really trying to press uh, everyone who would pick up this book and those who would read uh, the book as part of the larger series that uh, this was really an enduring question that every human has to grapple with. Ah, I like his thinking, Greg. So what does uh, Bavink see, you know, when, when you think of the, the teachings of Jesus, what would he look back and say was the most remarkable thing about those teachings? Yeah, so one of the things that he really tries to highlight is the uniqueness of Christ as the Son of Man, really emphasizing Christ's humanity. Um, okay. I really think he, he draws this from uh, St. Augustine. Uh, so Augustine was an early church a father who, who made quite a lot out of this distinction between the Son of Man and the Son of God. And one of the things that Augustine did uh, was he saw in the Son of Man really Christ's servant form, uh, this ability to uh, relate to us uh, in our humanity. And, and Bavink really uh, draws and gets attached to this kind of uh, theme in, in Christ's teaching. That is interesting. I, we've had a lot of people ask questions about Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, and I, I'd love I'd love some more on that. If you've got more to share, I just find that so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so you have this distinction between the, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Right. Um, uh, so one of the things that Augustine does with it is he really tries to make it clear that. Um, one of the cool things that I think Augustine does with it, so if you take a look at like his book, uh, The Trinity, or his The City of God, he really tries to highlight uh, that Christ as the Son of Man is really identifying with us, and it's really the times in Scripture either where uh, Christ is talking about uh, his humanity, talking about uh, how he relates to us, or uh, in reference to almost the Daniel passages of of the Son of Man will be glorified. So it's in some way an extension to being at the right hand of the Father. And so you have these two dynamics uh, that are getting talked about with the Son of Man. And one of the really cool things that Augustine does with it is Augustine uh, carries it through to the eschaton or to the, the last things and, and really shows how in, in the very judgment of the church, the way the various passages talk about the Son of Man and the Son of God, uh, that those who will be judged will see Christ as the Son of Man. Uh, but those who will be judged as the church will see in the Son of Man, the Son of God, meaning we will begin to behold something of the beatific vision of who uh, Christ is truly in his divinity. And, uh, and I've always been really mystified, or, or, or maybe it gets me slightly emotional to think about this moment uh, that we'll have as believers. But It's really powerful, Greg, and I, I think it can be a little bit of a, of a confusion for people but just the way you stated it, it was beautifully done. So thank you for that. No problem. Um, I, yeah. So clearly the disciples did not fully understand who Jesus was uh, until after his death and resurrection. 
-hmm. Although there are times we think they completely get him and understand who he is. And then other times we go, "Mm, not quite there yet. So why, why do you, or, or why did Bobak think that they just didn't fully understand who he was till after his death and resurrection? Well, I think part of this is just the, um, uh, the revealed nature of revelation and that, uh, uh, Christ had to kind of make himself known in, in veiled parables uh, such that his kingdom would not be ushered in uh, immediately. And so mm-hmm. he, he kind of had to hide himself a little bit um, for the, the disciples. And they kind of get a bad rap. We're often uh, just as uh, ignorant and, uh, and, <laughs> and struggle with the, the passages as much as they do. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. Let me take a little break. Dr. Greg Parker is my guest. His book is called What is Christianity by Herman Bovink. And we'll take a little break and be right back. All right, we are back with Dr. Greg Parker. He's written a book called What is Christianity by Herman Bovink. Bovink was a um, theologian, died in 1921. And world religions all point you to how to get to God. Christianity is the only religion who the head of it says, I am God. So, Greg, maybe we can talk about what began to separate Christianity from other world religious systems or beliefs. Yeah, that's that's a great uh, insight that that Bovink brings to the surface in the book. So so part of the book is is really him retelling all of church history in uh, about sixty pages or so. I think BB Warfield, who maybe some of your listeners will be aware of, uh, reform thinker, said he's not sure if anyone could do it quite as good or or quite as concisely. And so this retelling involves. Uh, really getting into the early church and the development of doctrines, and it brings us all the way up to modernity. And one of the okay. claims that, that Bovink makes in the book uh, is that the, one of the distinctives of the Christian religion, when you compare it to the other religions, uh, is that the religion is not um, about something that is not the religion itself. In other words, uh, Christ is... Christianity, uh, whereas uh, Muhammad or um, I'm blanking on uh, other religious systems now. Uh, Confucius. Muhammad, uh, Confucius, right? These these individuals were putting together kind of thought systems for people to yeah. follow and pointing towards other things. Whereas Christ is really saying, uh, listen, I'm, I'm, I am the kingdom of God. <laughs> the kingdom of God is coming through me. Uh, I mm-hmm. am the, the way, the truth, and the light. Uh, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, so so Bavink's really trying to identify that the uniqueness uh, in the content is specifically tied to who Christ is. Yeah. So Bavink uh, writes, and you point out in the book, that the Reformation didn't start in intellectual reasoning. What What does he mean by that, Greg? Yeah, so so he's really trying to draw out that that religion itself um, is a is the activity of the heart. 
Uh, and so when he looks at uh, religious history, he's saying, listen, uh, you know, Martin Luther very well, you know, nailed the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg Chapel. And he, he had theses, right, uh, intellectual arguments. Um, but it wasn't the intellectual arguments that brought him to that chapel door. Uh, it was the, the, the convictions of his heart, the movements uh, of the spirit in his heart. So he's really trying to help us to see that uh, that religion uh, is not uh, abstract, we might say. Uh, it has everything to do with the concrete realities that we live in. Uh, that, that belief in God is not belief in uh, something that is out there, but rather it's belief in reality itself. Uh, so he's really trying to help us make a, a connection there uh, between the head and the heart, that that what we believe when we say uh, Christ is Lord, uh, this is this is an action of the heart. I like that. Dr. Greg Parker is my guest. His book is called What is Christianity by Herman Bovink. He's the translator, editor of the book. And let's go back to talking a little bit about the, the, the Reformation. Um, Greg, in, in what ways did the principle of the Reformation flow from change in religious and moral life? Yeah, so this is one of the other unique things that Bavink tries to draw out, uh, which is that the Reformation was not strictly about doctrine, but it had everything to do uh, with the lives that people were living, uh, right? When you look at uh, Luther being upset at the selling of indulgences, um, mm-hmm. or, or, or Calvin being upset at the way that uh, priests are having all these mistresses, uh, these, are, these are things that they're grappling with that are actually affecting people around them. Uh, not necessarily uh, having content uh, belief attached to them, right? So, of course, uh, Luther is upset that indulgences are uh, impacting how we view atonement. And uh, Calvin is upset that uh, the way we're allowing priests to uh, kind of sleep around is impacting how we view the created order and and relationships between men and women. Uh, But they see it happening at a very pastoral level. And so, therefore, the Reformation has, has really everything to do with the ethics of, of the people of God as they're uh, navigating uh, their surroundings. Um, mm. And it's a, it's a really interesting part of the book, or at least I think so as the translator, <laughs> Bill. Um, uh, because uh, in, in, uh, Bavink really uh, kind of identifies himself, you could say, in that uh, so he's a neo-Calvinist thinker, uh, meaning that uh, he comes from this tradition that really values the thought of Calvin and wants mm-hmm. to re, re-engage it or, or reimagine it for his own uh, community. Uh, so Neo being this uh, this newness, uh, this new version of Calvinism. Uh, and it's a very ecumenical book in that he's really trying to point out all that unites the Church, that we're united around this one confession of Christ, we're united in baptism. And he's really not trying to... Uh, point fingers and say, well, this branch of the church is doing it really poorly. But I do like in the section of the Reformation, he does go, well, and I, I think Calvin kind of works this out the best. Uh, it was just mm-hmm. like a little uh, nod of the hat uh, to his own little tradition. So it's, uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah. So why would Bobbink say that there'd be a crisis in, in Christianity today? Yeah, so as he was looking at uh, kind of the the ground moving beneath his feet and the developments of modernity, there was this real movement towards uh, rationalism and empiricism, but also a a really what was uh, kind of rampant in the Netherlands and in Germany 
uh, is what co- uh, scholars call that, that people were very sleepy, <laughs> uh, meaning uh, there was kind of a, a modern malaise in the words of uh, philosopher Charles Taylor. People were just really upset with their lives and, and kind of viewing it pessimistically, like, is this going anywhere? Uh, Nietzsche hmm. was uh, beginning to kind of have a, a footstool uh, building off of the philosopher Schopenhauer. And so together, there was kind of this nihilism in the air uh, that is, is life worth living. Uh, and Bavink was kind of looking around at this saying, hey, like this, this, these kind of forces are uh, attacking the way that we view our human life. And, and actually, uh, Christianity still has something to say to this. Um, and so he was uh, not afraid of modernity, but was really uh, maybe concerned with the, the forces at, at wake and how they were working themselves out in the church. Boy, sound like anything current? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of remarkably uh, prescient. But, no yeah. one knows it ever. Just have a, co- a couple of minutes left, Greg. So is there a road map back to really a deeper understanding of our faith? Yeah. Uh, so maybe maybe there are two directions that I think Bavink presses us in. One is he does push us in this Augustinian direction, where the book really culminates with this Trinitarian confession that reminds us that our rest is to be found in Jesus Christ. Uh, we are a very busy people. We, we fill our schedules as much as we can. And, uh, and I think there's something um, probably negative about that aspect of modernity, right? If you think of the washing machine, well, 100 years ago, right, we would only wear, you know, three, four pairs of clothes across a month, right? Mm-hmm. And you'd have your kind of Sunday clothes, your working clothes, and then you'd have um, your sleeping clothes, and you'd probably have two working clothes sets. Well, you know, now at the laundry machine, we wear, you know, maybe 30 outfits throughout the week between sleeping, working out, and going to work. Um, mm-hmm. And that, instead of creating space in our life, actually just created more loads of laundry, right? So we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're busier yeah. than we ever been. Uh, and so I think the, the hustle and bustle of modernity really pushes us uh, towards Bobbing's acknowledgement that our, our rest is really to be found in Jesus Christ. And so I think um, that's really where he's pushing the reader, uh, that we need to uh, consider what do you make of Jesus Christ? Who Who is he, really? And if, if who he is is who he says he is, then that makes demands on our life. And therefore, we're to find our, our rest in him. Uh, and this, he really moves uh, towards a triune confession. We just have a, a minute left. I'm curious as to where you got your your desire to study Bavink, and when, how long ago did that happen? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so I actually graduated from the university I teach at now, Karen University. And um, while I was a student here, I, I very much uh, got taught the Bible, and I'm so thankful for uh, the, the courses I took. But I really felt nice. like I lacked a, a system or a way of seeing how my doctrine of creation had something to do with my doctrine of atonement, but I wasn't really sure. And uh, at that time period, uh, Bavink had just come into English, his uh, Reformed Dogmatics, Thankfully uh, to the Lord, uh, I picked up those four-volume sets and eventually uh, read through them and found my way into a doctoral program. Greg, thank you so much for doing the show. It's been a delight meeting you. I appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you so much, thank you. Bill. You, you bet. Dr. Greg Parker has been my guest, and of course his book is What is Christianity by Herman Bobbink. We'll take a break and be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Prime time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back to the show. We're going to talk today about what might be the shortest book in the New Testament with one of my taller guests, although he's tall, he moves like a cat, which is great. Dr. Greg Heddington <laughs> is my guest, and we're going to continue our study in Second John. Greg, welcome. Great to be here, Bill. Well, yeah, let's dig in. Welcome to our ninth lesson as we look at Second John in our study of several New Testament epistles. There are four letters in the New Testament which are composed of only one chapter, and they are some of the least read books in Scripture. They are Philemon, Second John, Third John, and Jude. And we're studying all of them, and some people call them postcard epistles because of their length. And here's the opening sentence of Second John, quote, The elder to the elect lady and her children, end of quotation. That's it. John refers to himself as elder, which is translated in Greek as presbyteros, which refers to an older person. For example, the Presbyterian Church is led by elders. That would be the presbyteros. Now, the word presbyopia is the medical word for nearsighted vision. So no matter what your age is, if you're nearsighted, one thing for certain is that you have presbyopia, also called elder eyes. Now, I had elder eyes I probably had it ever since I was in sixth grade when I could no longer see the uh, the, the board. And I had to uh, borrow my friend's glasses to see the blackboard. My teacher finally said, I think you need glasses. So that's your Greek word for the day, elder, which is presbyteros in Greek. John the Elder, also known as the Elder or the Apostle of Love, writes this letter to the elect lady and her children. Some scholars think he wrote to an individual woman and her biological children, while others believe the elect lady and her children are the personification of an early congregation and its members. But no matter the case, these letters from John were intended to be circulated and read among other congregations, so they are called circular letters, just as the apostles Peter and Paul also wrote circular letters, which were to be distributed among various churches. John's purpose in writing this letter is to warn his readers about false teachers who are endangering the church, and he wants to express what truth and real love look like for the believer. He's precise. So in verse 6, he writes, This is love that we walk according to his commandments. The commands from Jesus are to love God and the brothers and sisters. So I'll talk about that, but first... We will want to look at Roman number one, deceivers of the brethren. Now, I'm talking about the Gnostics. We've talked about them before. Gnostics coming from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. But they believed they had a special secret kind of knowledge that only a few special people got. And therefore, they were deceivers. So as we continue to read the writings of John, one of the themes that continues to come up is regarding these deceivers who want to discourage the believers. John calls them antichrists, plural, and false teachers. We still have false teachers today in the church, and I was talking to a bishop just last week who said, the churches I see are filled with Gnostics. In other words, people believe they have some special knowledge, but it's exclusive to them. 
Now, we know the twisted influence of Gnostics comes from the ultimate deceiver, who is Satan, and he's not changed his strategy to destroy our belief in Jesus. You know, it always intrigues me when I hear people refer to historical murderers like Mao or the Khmer Rouge or Hitler or Stalin, who killed millions of their own people, but they're often referred to as crazy. Friends, they were not crazy. They were evil, and for some reason... Many people prefer to substitute a psychological word like crazy instead of the appropriate and correct word for them, which is evil. So the goal of Satan is to prevent people from attaining salvation through Jesus by twisting the truth and saying that Jesus was either not fully human or not fully God. Now, as verse 7 shows us, one of Satan's most effective lies over the centuries is to confuse people about the truth of who Jesus is. I usually refer to Jesus, by the way, in the present tense, because he is as alive today as he ever was. Here are two truths which we believe and Satan tries to distort. The first truth is Jesus is fully God, and the second truth is Jesus uh, yeah, Jesus was, was fully human in his time on earth as well. We embrace those two truths, and they are critical truths. Now, why are they critical? Two reasons. First, Scripture teaches both truths. Second, both truths together are absolutely necessary for salvation. If anyone's asking why, here's a good way to explain it to someone when you tell them about Jesus. A. If Jesus were not human, he could not have died to pay the price for our sins because God determined that someone had to pay the consequences for sin, and that had to be a perfect person, and there's only been one. Scripture says God requires justice for sin, and we do not pay it, thankfully, when we trust Jesus because he paid for it. And then B, if Jesus were not God then it would not have mattered if he had died on the cross purely as a human. He would have been like the other, so many other victims of the Roman Empire whom they executed. Jesus had to be sinless and human, or his death would not have been a substitution for us when he took our place. Now, the Gnostics of the first few centuries, and by the way, they were the first heresy of the church, Uh, The Gnostics continued to refuse that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine and tried to split the church by spreading those lies. To deny either truth is to strike at the heart of New Testament teaching and would imply that Jesus did not save us from our sins and then our lives would be separated from the Lord. But... There is a healing salve, a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Amen. Roman numeral two. Just a reminder, if you just joined us, we are studying Second uh, John from my friend and Bible teacher, Dr. Greg Heddington. And Greg, this is an uh, amazing, amazing study. Let's continue. All right, Bill. Number two, Roman numeral, uh, truth and lies. I want to talk a bit about truth and lies and the false teachers who were part of the early church. Now, there's little doubt that at least some of them were sincere. Have you ever heard the comment that goes, it doesn't make any difference what someone believes as long as they are sincere. 
But the truth is many people are sincere and sincerely wrong. Truth is not dependent on how one feels. For example, does it make a difference what your pharmacist believes and tells you to believe? How about what a surgeon or an airplane pilot believes and tells you to believe? Yes, what they believe and tell you to believe can make a difference in whether or not you live. Now, have you ever walked through an old cemetery and looked at the gravestones placed there? It has to be a really old cemetery, but one that maybe goes back 100 years. In past times, it was fashionable in some cemeteries to etch on the gravestone the way in which the person died. It's not so popular now, but it was then. I once saw one particular gravestone that succinctly described this person's last day. Here's what it said. Shed a tear for Billy Brown. Poor Billy is no more. For what he thought was H2O was H2SO4. Now, SO4 is a symbol for sulfuric acid. Okay, it's a little bit macabre, yet the point is people can be sincere, but when they are wrong, it can cost their life. And there's only one truth when it comes to eternal issues, and believers stand on the living word of God in all matters concerning what to believe and how our Creator would have us live. Are Christ followers exclusive about what we believe? Absolutely. There's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus. But the Lord does not exclude anyone and desires that everyone would make the choice to follow him. Again, very different from the Gnostics who believed it was an exclusive truth that exclusively only they could follow and know about. Now, I've seen some miraculous physical healings in my, in my days But there is no greater miracle than a new heart, a transformed heart that is filled with the love of God so that they no longer place their own needs and desires as their highest priority. One thing that can transform a heart is when someone acknowledges that since they will die one day, they want to live the way their creator intends for them to live because only two things will last in eternity the Word of God, and people. The Word of God will not change, and we have a choice to make whether to accept or reject the good news of Jesus. As the father of existentialism, Soren Kierkegaard, once said, People make noise on New Year's Eve to drown out the sound of grass growing over their graves. Okay, Kierkegaard was not a particularly merry fellow, but he was a realist, and I think many people will do whatever it takes to not think about their own death or eternity. And that has resulted in many bizarre beliefs from seemingly rational people. As someone has said, people now listen to gossip and embrace those comments as true. But when they read news in the newspaper or from well-respected sources, they consider that news to be alive. Bill, I think this is a good time for a break. Uh, All right, Greg. I was slightly... Uh, amused, we were talking about uh, tomb, tombstones from very old cemeteries. Yes, uh, and they would have put the cause of death. I, I'm sure on mine it would have said, "Ignored the advice." Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, because that's uh, anyway. We'll take a little break. We'll come back. Lots more with the teaching of Dr. Greg Headington. We are in Second John. Get your Bibles out to Second John. We'll be right back. 
We're back with Dr. Greg Heddington as we continue our study in 2 John. John is overjoyed to know that uh, the readers uh, walk in truth, and he tells them to love one another. And as the protective shepherd, he also is warning people against uh, false teachers. And of course, this is one of the great warnings in 2 John. So if you're uh, with us today and your Bible's open, uh, we are in 2 John with Dr. Greg Heddington. Greg, let's pick it up. Bill, that's right. We're talking about the truth that Jesus gave us because uh, so many people believe that uh, if they're sincere, it doesn't matter what they believe, and we know that is certainly not the case. And it's not always easy to know it's true, and it takes courage to stand on one's convictions. I believe it was Mark Twain who said this, and of course, when Americans don't recall what the original source of a quotation is, they often give credit to Mark Twain, but I think uh, it was Mark Twain that said, a lie runs around the world while truth is still putting on its shoes. Well, we know that a lie can divide a group, which is what the false teachers in John's churches were hoping to do. But we believe in the one who said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, one of my favorite passages regarding whom to trust is Psalm 146, verse 3, which says, do not put your trust in princes or in any man in whom there is no salvation. Because when he breathes his last, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. That was, by the way, prophetically written nine centuries before Jesus made his historic trip to earth. Yes, we believe there is only one in whom there is salvation and who is alive right now. He's not in the cemetery. We cannot visit his grave because he only vacated one for three days. Jesus is large and in charge because the grave could not hold him. Roman numeral three, to win a full reward. In verse eight, John says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So what is the full reward? Well, the answer is it's entrance into the eternal kingdom. We are rewarded for our trust in the Lord, even though no one's efforts are ever perfect. We do our best. We pray that it's blessed. And Jesus takes care of the rest. But once we're trusting the Lord, we do not go in and out of salvation like a yo-yo. Only God knows our true motives as to whether we love others from the heart or whether we play to the audience by trying to please them. And that's such a temptation for so many people to be liked, to be popular, to make other people like them somehow. But God is the majority of one, and he rewards the intentions of our heart, and not whether or not our results are perfect, because they never will be perfect. But he knows our hearts. He sees our hearts. So we certainly can't fake him out or try to make a, let's make a deal with him. When we receive our salvation here on earth, we will not lose it. It's secure. Sometimes we do not ever see the results of our efforts, but the Lord knows them, so we don't have to live in fear. The believer has eternal security, and as Jesus says in John 10:28, I know those who are mine, and no one shall take them away out of my hand. A few years ago, I took a trip to England, and I visited one of the many grand cathedrals, which are all over Europe, many of which are hundreds of years old. In one such cathedral, I kneeled to pray, and as I was on the kneeler, I happened to glance under the pew and saw some exquisitely wood-carved figures that had been carved on the underside of the pew many, many years ago by the woodcarver who had built the pew. 
After I got it from prayer, I said to one of the guides of the cathedral, there's some beautiful artwork that has been carved in the wood underneath the pew I was sitting on, but people who pray here will never see or appreciate it. The guide said, oh, yes, but God sees. And that was an act of worship made by the craftsmen many years ago. Ever since that day, I have been more conscious whenever I do something for someone by asking myself the question, am I doing this to receive the praise of others, or am I doing this to reflect the love of Jesus, as he did, for others, whether or not I receive thanks from them? Roman numeral four, walking in love. Jesus made it clear what he was about when he explains why he came to earth in the key passage of the Gospel of Mark. In fact, if somebody says, what is the key verse of Mark? Here it is, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus says, The Son of Man, and he's referring to himself, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, he's referring to his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. We cannot die for the sins of others because it took a sinless man, an unblemished sacrificial lamb, so that the Jews might understand it better when they would look back on this. However, as Jews in our model, uh, Jesus is our model, but we're, and we're to have a similar quality of humility and love for others as we serve them. For the Jews, it was always working hard, trying to do the best, trying to please God. But Jesus is our model to serve, and it's faith in him, because we're never going to be good enough to make it. We just can't, no matter how hard we try. Then we both receive the joy when we're serving God. He gets the glory, we get the joy. In the first half of the 20th century, there was a man known for his many years of sacrificial work as a missionary doctor in Africa. And his discovery of cures for certain diseases uh, in Africa uh, made him world famous. And that man was Albert Schweitzer. And he expressed his life's motivation in a speech that he once gave in 1935 when he simply, simply said this, Those who will be truly happy in this life are those who have sought and found how to serve. Now, when it comes to loving people, the test of our character is how we treat the people whom we're not required to treat well. I mean, we're not required to treat anyone well, but we are told by Scripture to serve others. But who are these people that we're not typically required to treat well? Well, I think of those who are in the areas of service, house cleaning, mechanics, lawn workers, garbage collectors, waiters, valets, and especially those who clean public restrooms who are almost invisible to most people. In fact, when I go to an airport, I see these people. They, they work quietly. They really are almost invisible to almost everyone. The next time you're in a public restroom, think about telling the person who's working there, I appreciate your hard work. Because we do appreciate it. And then watch the reaction. The reaction I usually get when I say that is just a look of disbelief from them or, or stunned silence. But the response is not important because as Christ lovers are just following the model of Jesus, 
who went out of his way to be kind to the least, that they may know the Father's love. No one was ever more loving and kind than Jesus, who told us in Matthew 25, verse 40, As you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. You know, it's not because the least have done something for which they deserve our love, but then think about this. Neither have we done anything to deserve the love of Jesus for us. And regarding words of love, I remember so well an incident that occurred over 35 years ago when I was at a worship service, and the visiting preacher was Dr. Richard Halverson, whom I had known when I lived in the Washington, D.C. area. And several people approached him after the service, and just as one of the men walked away from talking with him, Reverend Halverson said to that man, I love you, brother. That man walked a few more steps. I was right next to him, and he turned to me and said, that was such an insincere thing for him to say. I mean, he doesn't even know me, and he says he loves me. Well, I replied, well, that's what we're supposed to do as believers, to love everyone. Okay, I didn't actually say that, but I wish I had, because I believe that. But after all, he was an older man, and I didn't know him very well, so I just remained silently irritated at this, quote, churchgoer, whom I think should have expected a kind word from the visiting preacher, because after all, love is the mark of the Christ follower. That's who we are, and that's what we do. There's an episode in ancient history that illustrates who a person is. By 320 B.C., General Alexander, known to us as Alexander the Great, was considered one of history's greatest and most successful military commanders, as he created one of the largest empires in history. During one campaign to conquer Borland, he received a report that his soldier and his army was not acting bravely in battle. Instead of pressing forward in the battle, this soldier was lingering behind. General Alexander heard about this and called the man into his headquarters. He asked him, What is your name, soldier? The man replied, Sir, my name is Alexander. The general looked him straight in the eye and said, Soldier, either change your, your ways and fight or you change your name. Well, what is our name? Well, the Apostle Paul and John and the rest of Scripture refer to us as children of God, brothers, brethren, the elect, the chosen. Alexander wanted his name to be reflected as a symbol of greatness. We want our name to be a symbol of humility and service and love and allowing people to know the Lord. To be a child of God means we're overcomers. We are we experienced we will experience an earthly death but after that there is the true life for which Jesus planned a child of god means we are overcomers of habitual sins those persistent behaviors that the holy spirit helps us to have victory over and third a child of god overcomes a world that has always been hostile to those who follow our lord sojourner truth the great abolitionist of the 19th century said this i will not allow my life's light to be determined by the darkness around me Finally, loving the brothers and sisters in Christ, Roman number five, followers of Jesus are from many nations. They care about each of uh, each other enough to gather together in small groups on a regular basis. They think together, discuss together, pray together, and play together in order to learn little by little to love unconditionally, to serve God and not money, humble themselves, give without seeking in return, 
empower and not control, show mercy, not revenge, seek justice and freedom for all people, encourage and not discourage, spread hope and not despair, believe and not doubt. They've decided to to seek to do this together to establish throughout the world a revolution of love so powerful that the division and animosity separating people and nations will be greatly eliminated through the model of Jesus of Nazareth. So, friends, may our lives be as such. Bill, that's, that's all I have to say today. That's fantastic, uh, Greg. I love this teaching, and thank you once again for uh, coming on the show. Well, it's a joy, Bill. I'm just glad I get to do this. Have a great rest of the day. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. If you want to receive a daily email featuring a scripture graphic, you can sign up for uh, at, for the verse of the day at myfaithradio.com. I think you should do it. I think it's great. That's all the time we have. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.